0: Father, we just thank you that we're here together, and uh, we're just so grateful for the ways that you move, even in troublesome times, somehow, some way you exploit it for your glory, your good purposes, and we don't always see that this side of heaven, and this particular story it's one of those head-scratchers, because we're going to watch how John the Baptist died, and it's just so, it seems senseless in many ways, and yet you had a plan all along And Lord, as we study your word now, we just pray our hearts will be open to what you would say to us, because you are a faithful God, and we want to be faithful people. So let us respond to your truth with a heart that's open to hear what you have to say to us by your spirit, and to walk out our faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. A fallen hero is the message Mark 6, 6, uh, 14 through 29. I want to ask you a question. How would you define a hero? You know, today uh, I think we look often in all the wrong places for our heroes. Our heroes are typically someone who's on a TV screen or someone who's good at something, maybe singing or acting or sports. And certainly you can look up to people like that for their abilities. And of course, it's always refreshing to find when you. Maybe admire an athlete or a singer or somebody like that, and then you find out they're a Christian. I think it's even all the more encouraging. How do you define a hero? It's not about whether or not a man has fallen in battle, but it's what a man or a woman stands for that makes a hero. The value of a life is not about the length of days or achievements. Rather, it's about the impact that that person made for God on others. What did you do? Who did you touch? What did you live for? And what did you die for? That's the questions I think that we should be asking in our generation. The life and death of John the Baptist stirs those kinds of questions. In many ways, his death seems like a senseless tragedy, especially the way that it happened. It seems even that perhaps evil won the day. But it's not true evil did not win the day because evil will be dealt with. And we'll see in this story how even Herod could not live with what he did. But I do have questions like you. Why did John have to die so young? He was only in his 30s. Remember, he was born just a little bit before Jesus, so he was in his 30s when he died. Why? Why did he have to suffer imprisonment and death in this way? In fact, in the Macarius prison, which archaeology has discovered today, we believe he spent about a year in this dark, terrible place. No light, no fresh air. Why? Why didn't Jesus intervene? Why did he let him die? And why did this wicked queen get her way? Those are questions that I think um, any person reading the Bible or experience in life should ask. They're legitimate questions. But think about it this way you know, God didn't spare John the Baptist, and John the Baptist was the prophesied forerunner of the Messiah, and yet he died a martyr's death. And in many ways, as students of the Bible, we should be thinking that John's death in some ways foreshadows Jesus' death. John dies primarily because of a grudge that the queen has against him because he's called out their uh, unlawful lifestyle, or their sinful lifestyle. And John dies because of it. And Jesus died largely because of envy. In fact, Pontius Pilate even knew that it was because of envy that the Jewish leadership turned Jesus over uh, to him and wanted him to die. So we gather on this Memorial Day weekend and we think about some deep questions as Christians. Why did John die in this way? Some people can have their opinions about why, but you know what? John didn't die because he did something wrong. So if you ever hear somebody say that, that's just not true. In fact, Jesus said of John, among those born of women, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. John was a great man. He was a sold-out man. Some interesting things about John. He was even filled with the Holy Spirit while in his mother's womb. He went out to the wilderness. He obeyed the call of God in his life. And he became a man, a voice of his generation, a man of deep character and morals. Luke 1.15 says, He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor Most scholars believe that John uh, took the Nazarite vow or lived out the Nazarite vow from birth, which means he drank no liquor. He didn't touch anything, any dead bodies. He let his hair grow. He was like a New Testament Samson, but a very courageous and moral man. And of course, John was famous for his fiery preaching, and his message was just like the message of Jesus, repent, For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. And John preached, and thousands of people came to be baptized in uh, John's ministry. And John was asked, are you the coming one? Are you the Messiah? And John said, no, I'm not. In fact, I'm not even worthy to untie the thong of his sandals, but one is coming after me who is mightier than I, and he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so John prepared the way of the Lord. He said in John 3:30 in these famous words that many of us have have held on to, he must increase, I must decrease. In John 1:29 he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yet John was human as he languished in prison, he even began to ask questions about whether or not Jesus was the Messiah, Matthew eleven three says, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? John sent that message to Jesus. He had questions. He wondered why he was in prison. And Jesus began to talk about the miracles that he was doing and then he began to uh, laud or elevate or speak well of John the Baptist. And he, he was indeed a great man. And so uh, John paved the way for Jesus, and this particular story is somewhat of an interlude in the Gospel of Mark. It's looking back on how John died, Mark six fourteen, and King Herod heard of it for his name. The name of Jesus had become well known, and remember last week, uh, Pastor Chris showed us what the disciples were doing in the name of Jesus, and people were saying, notice Mark 6, 14, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he's Elijah, they were saying of Jesus. And others were saying, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. Jesus' fame, and it's understandable why this was happening, was spreading everywhere. And it came to the king's ears. And people were talking. Jesus was the talk of the town. And people were speaking about who he might be. Take your Bible Turn to Matthew chapter 16. As Jesus is winding down his ministry, he goes to a place called Caesarea Philippi in the northern part of Israel. Really interesting place to go. It's a place that was known for pagan worship. In fact, there's a little cutout in the hillside there, and they called the place in ancient times the Rock of the Gods. And they have little windows. You can see these Uh, If you look this up, Caesarea Philippi, you can see the little cutouts, and there were demonic-type figures in there, and people called this area the Rock of the Gods, and they said those little cutouts in the the hillside were the gates that led to Hades. And when Peter makes his great confession about who Jesus is, Jesus, standing at Caesarea Philippi, probably looked up to the Rock of the Gods and said, and the gates of Of Do you remember? Hades, or hell, will not prevail against my church. It is very, very likely that when Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church, it wasn't necessarily Peter's confession, although it could have been Peter's confession with another layer that he was speaking of this rock dedicated to paganism, false religion, idolatry, the devil, and all it stood for. And Jesus said, you see, on that rock... I will build my church. And you, you might think, well, Pastor Michael, are you sure that's what he was saying? And the gates of Hades will not prevail against my church. Gates in the ancient world were for defensive purposes. So what that means is as the church rushes the gates of the unsaved world, that, those gates will not be able to hold us back. Do you see that as your mission? John did. John believed that as he preached, God would do mighty things through his ministry. And indeed, he did. And now all that Jesus was doing reached the king's ears. And in Matthew 16, notice, when Jesus came 13, Matthew sixteen thirteen, into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, saying, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say, notice, Matthew 16, 14, that you're John the Baptist. Others are saying that you're Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Turn back to Mark chapter 6. So people were talking about Jesus left and right because of all these incredible things he was doing. Mark 6.16. And when Herod heard of it, Herod was the king of the time in this region, he kept saying Mark 6.16, he said it over and over and over again. John, whom I, the I in Greek is emphatic, beheaded, has risen. I think you could see the king walking around his palace. John, who I beheaded, has risen. John, who I killed, has risen. The king was miserable. You remember the story of Daniel in the lion's den when Daniel is put into that terrible place and Daniel is down there and you would think, man, he's gonna be lunch and dinner for these lions, but he wasn't. The Lord protected him. In fact, I picture Daniel down there petting the lions. (laughs) Wouldn't that be cool to pet a lion and not have to be fearful, right? And I think think he slept well that night, but the king couldn't sleep. And the king came to the lion's den. You remember he said, oh, Daniel, has your God delivered you? And Daniel's voice came up. Oh, yes, king. He shut the lion's mouth. And then he was brought up out of the lion's den. And do you remember? But the people who accused him falsely, they went down into the lion's den. If you've read the story, it did not end pretty. <laughs> just as they were going down, they became the lunch of the lions. Good to be on God's side, isn't it? So Herod's pacing around, John, whom I beheaded. <laughs> He's risen. Apparently, the king believed in the resurrection. Maybe he had some weird, you know, pagan view of resurrection, but he believed John had come back to life. You know, this is why this is happening. He thought it was about him and this evil he had done. Herod kept saying over and over again, he's risen. Now, John's voice could be stilled by Herod's dastardly deed, but... Herod could not quiet his conscience. He was able to quiet John's voice for the moment, but couldn't quiet his conscience. If people didn't have a conscience, the king wouldn't have had another thought about what he had done. But he couldn't get over it. He kept saying to himself, and he was all of a sudden thinking, Jesus is John, and I'm in trouble. In Jewish thinking, the resurrection is a prelude to judgment. Maybe that's what Herod was thinking. Luke 9, verse 9 said, Herod said to himself, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see Jesus. He really wanted to see Jesus. And at the end of his life, Jesus' earthly ministry, he does see Jesus. And Jesus does not speak one word to Herod. Not one. He did not even get to hear the voice of the Son of God. Who is this man? This is the question that people were talking about. This is the question that was troubling Herod. Miraculous powers are happening. And so the enemies of, that are gonna be mentioned here in this text, let me tell you a little bit about them. Uh, King Herod was known as Herod the Tetrarch, according to Matthew 14.1. He's the one that killed John. Uh, he was... Uh, uh, Idomian, his dad was Idomian, and his dad had married a Samaritan woman, so he was basically a Gentile. He eventually heard the news about Jesus. The term tetrarch technically means a ruler of the fourth part. When Herod the Great died, and Herod the Great was the king that had the babies killed in Bethlehem, and he was the ruler at the time that Jesus was born. When Herod the Great died, his kingdom was divided among some of his sons, and they took a fourth part. And so they were all technically tetrarchs, and they oversaw different regions of Israel at the time. And so this particular Herod, Herod, he was known as Herod Antipas, wanted to have the title of king, but he would not get it. In fact, he would later ask the emperor Caligula to proclaim his, him as king, but Caligula refused. Herod the tetrarch was son of Herod the Great by his fourth wife, Malthaiki, who was a Samaritan, His dad was Idomian, as I mentioned, from the area of Edom. And he was hated by the Jewish people because basically he was a descendant of Esau and a descendant of a Samaritan. So the Jewish people and the Jewish leadership were not happy to have him as the king of this particular region. And so he had brothers. One of his brothers was named Archelaus. Another brother was named Philip. And the, the, the area was divided up among the brothers. He was, at this time, in his 32nd year of rule. He spent most of the year in a place called Tiberias, which, by the way, was built on an ancient cemetery, which really troubled the Jewish leadership because they felt like if they walked on this ground, then they would be defiled. And um, he had this place built, or his father had a place built called Mount Ma- Machaerus. It was a palace on the top with a dungeon on the bottom, seven miles east of the northern tip of the Dead Sea. The fortress sat about 3,500 feet above sea level, even higher than the city of Jerusalem. And down below, it had a dungeon, a terrible uh, dungeon, dark rank, no fresh air, no light. And archaeologists have discovered um, shackles where they believe the prisoners were kept in this area, and John the Baptist, you know, if you've seen some movies about John, they show him in a dungeon, you know, chained to a wall. and that's very real, put together by this area and what's been identified in this particular area. So notice, we pick up the story in Mark 6:17. Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound him in prison. Remember we're looking back now on what happened. on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. Because he had married her, Herodias was the daughter of Herod's half brother Aristobulus, and was thus Herod's niece. Get this: this is the stuff of daytime uh, talk shows, <laughs> television talk shows. I mean, think about it: he married his brother's wife, who was also his niece. You know, this is this is th- they pay for this kind of stuff. You know, if you're homesick from work one day, and you turn on those terrible talk shows. This is what you'd see on there. So she's your brother's wife, but your niece also, right? Uh, Yeah. So then she was technically, I guess, his sister-in-law as well. Anyway, if you wanna read more on this, and because this is a family Sunday, I'm not gonna go there, but you could read Leviticus 18, 16 through 25, Parents, you read it first, then you decide if you want to read it with your children. But this is the law in the book of Leviticus about what's right and wrong in regard to marriage and intimate relationships and the like. And John the Baptist, verse 18, Mark 6, had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So the scene may be that Herod came by in his carriage or there was some huge entourage with the king and the queen and John the Baptist saw them and he said, Herod, and he called out Herod. It's not lawful for you to be married to her. That's your brother's wife. And he called them out. And, you know, I asked the question and I think some of you do as well. Where's the John the Baptist today? Where are they? You know, sometimes people say, well, when it comes to moral issues in the culture, the church ought to largely keep silent. I don't know, asked John. He didn't believe that. And Herod was not a fellow believer, if you will. But John's message was clear. You are not supposed to be married to her. And we could even argue that Herod may not have seen himself under any kind of Jewish law, but Jewish law is God's law, if you will. He was appealing to the moral commandments of God, the top 10, you shall not commit adultery. And Herod had stolen his brother's wife from his brother. And John said, It's not right. It's not lawful. New Living Translation, Matthew 14, 4. It is against God's law for you to marry her. Are there any John the Baptist anymore? New Testament scholar A.T. Robertson said it cost him his head, but it's better to have a head like John the Baptist and lose it than to have an ordinary head and keep it. Close quote. <laughs> Would you turn to Isaiah chapter 5 in your Bible? Isaiah 5. This is what I think of when I think of the culture of the time. There's nothing new under the sun, and it's kind of like our culture. We seem to be confused over things that shouldn't be that confusing. But here's Isaiah 5. Look at verse 20. God is speaking to the nation of Israel. And he says these words. Isaiah 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Isaiah five twenty. Notice there's a woe pronounced on them. That's a, an expression of sympathy mixed with anticipation of judgment. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those, Isaiah 5.21, who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. You could write Herod's name there or Herodias' name there. Woe to those who are heroes in what? In drinking wine. And valiant men in mixing strong drink. Uh, Who justify the wicked for a bribe can't help but think of the king of Herod. Take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot and their blossom blow away as dust. For they, notice, have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Turn back to Mark chapter 6. These issues were not hard to figure out. I think in his heart of hearts, Herod knew what he had done was wrong, but there he was living in this lifestyle and the prophet reminded him. He said, it's not right. What you're doing is just flat out wrong. And Herodias, Mark 6, 19, that's the wife that he stole away, had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. Now the story kind of shifts and you can see John and he's calling this this political couple out and he's saying it's wrong, what you're doing is wrong and the wife began to hold a grudge against John. She was not happy. She hated what he stood for and hated the fact that he had called them out. The only place, one writer says, where Herodias' marriage certificate could be safely written in her view was on the back of the death certificate of John. She didn't want to hear his voice anymore. And that's what a lot of people in our culture are doing. They want to silence the voices of opposition. If you don't approve with what they're doing, they want to silence you. They, want, they don't want you to have a microphone. They don't want to debate. They just want you marginalized. I hope you see it, friends. That's what's happening in our culture today. And so she held this grudge. And I want to show you one more Old Testament passage that's interesting. It's in Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, go to chapter 19. So here she is nursing this grudge, Leviticus 19. She's breaking the law of God, and I'll show you which one. Here it is, Leviticus 19, verse 18. It says these words. You shall not take vengeance. Leviticus nineteen eighteen. I hear Bible pages. It's music to my ears. It's wonderful that you guys are turning. Are you there? Okay. Leviticus nineteen eighteen, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall, what's your Bible say? Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now everybody just park for a second and listen to what I just want to fill in the blank. And I think you guys are seeing this. This is one of the two great commandments. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it, you show what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Would you notice that this is the verse that Jesus is quoting when he gives that combination answer, and the verse includes not taking vengeance or what? Bearing a grudge against the sons of your people. Turn back to Mark chapter 6. Are you bearing a grudge against someone? You know, it's a dangerous thing when you nurse a grudge, when you don't deal with it, when you don't give it to God, when you sit there and nurse it. The Hebrew word for grudge is natar. It means to guard or cherish your anger. A grudge means to guard or cherish your anger. Is that you? Are you sitting here this morning and you are nursing a grudge? In fact, th- there's some weird delight that you take in it. Are you nursing it? Cherishing it? You don't want to let it go. And you may have good reason to have a grudge. I mean, there's a lot of injustice that happens in our world. But one writer said when you nurse anger and you think about it and you you kind of, you know, you sit almost like a feast, you know, uh, uh, eating, letting it eat at you, and eating away, and, and so forth. The skeleton at the feast becomes you. You end up eating yourself up when you nurse a grudge. And that is what was happening to Herodias. She hated John. She was breaking the law of God. And John was taken into custody. And she wanted to put him to death because of this grudge that she had against John, Herodias. Herodias. This is the wife. This is the story. For Herod, look at verse 20, Mark 6. She had the grudge. She wanted to put him to death, but she could not do so. And here's why. For Herod was afraid of John, Mark 6, 20. Isn't it interesting how goodness is terrifying to evil people? They're just terrified. They they meet a moral person, and it's so different from the world that they're used to. It freaks them out. Here's, John, here's Herod, the king, and he's afraid of this holy man. He's afraid so much so that his wife keeps saying, kill him. And Herod keeps saying, no, no. He's holy, man. We cannot. And Herod was afraid of John, knowing, verse 20, that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. <laughs> Here, the irony is safe from his wife. And when he heard him Notice, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. It sounds like Herod would often go down into the, into the dungeon, perhaps bring an extra piece of bread. Say, John, tell me a little bit more. And John might have been in his shackles. And what was John's message down in the dungeon? The same that it was in the wilderness. Herod, repent. It's not right for you to have her as a wife. And Herod would just look at John like, wow, dude, really? <laughs> That's right. I think he was preaching the same message in the dungeon that he preached in the desert. He was consistent. John MacArthur says, just as John was fearful of nothing and no one except God, Herod feared almost everything and everyone except God. Close quote. What you fear really matters. And John didn't fear anybody, including the king. Obviously, he wouldn't have said anything had he feared him when he was free. And now even in the dungeon. I'm sure John was preaching repentance and faith in the Messiah, and Herod kind of enjoyed listening to him. You know, there's some people in our world they kind of enjoy going to church. It's kind of interesting for them. They're not Christians. I one day I was helping this young man. He was trying to make the high school baseball team, and we had gone to this uh, park and. I was hitting him baseballs and he was trying to get ready for this tryout. So I kept hitting him these baseballs. And out in the distance, like way beyond center field, there was a guy out there and he was doing some of those karate moves. He was like, and he was doing this weird breathing. And he was just like, what in the world is this dude doing, right? So finally, you know, this the kid was not that great at baseball at the time, and he had not played little league very much, and so he had missed a lot of the balls. So they were out. Uh, next to this guy doing his stuff, right, so we went out there and I said, "How are you doing today?" he' was like i 'm doing all right <laughs> I'm like, "Whoa, I go, "What are you doing out here?" And he goes, "Well, I just like to get in touch with nature and the trees and everything and I 'm like, "Wow, really, yeah, I like the energy." He said, "Oh I said, "What do you uh, believe about Jesus Christ? Oh, I believe he's a great one, but just many great great prophets, and he 's still doing his moves, right?" And he goes, I, I, in fact, I even like to go to church sometimes because I like the energy there. And I said, but what do you think of Jesus? And, you know, he was a good one, one of many way shores. And I said, but Jesus said he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And he <laughs> looked at me. <laughs> what? Yeah, that's what Jesus said, sir. Oh, I don't know. That's your No, that's not my opinion. That's what Jesus said, sir. Oh, our conversation changed a little bit. See, this is kind of what happens. Some people, they come and they they find it kind of interesting. Whoa, look at these Christians. Do you know today they're even starting atheist churches? Did you know that? They sing songs and they have people do talks. It's everything we do except one thing is missing. God! One of their hymns is, no one loves me, this I know. <laughs> what in the world? And so Herod would go down and he would listen to this fiery preacher and he, was, he enjoyed listening to him. And he came away, here's what your Bible says, perplexed. What? Yeah, he was. the word in the NIV is he was puzzled. Intrigued, but puzzled. I wonder how close on some of these occasions Herod came to belief in the God of the Bible. I wonder, I wonder if John got to his heart and, and he went, wow, I think I believe what, Ah, no, 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 no. Puzzled, fearful, intrigued. I hope that's not you. I hope you're, you haven't been sitting in a church for years and you're just intrigued Now, you could say that you walk away from my sermons puzzled, and I would totally understand that. (laughs) But anyway. And so here's Herod. At the end of Herod's life, because Jesus was in Herod's jurisdiction, Pilate sent Jesus to Herod. And Herod was longing to see Jesus. He just couldn't wait. I mean, after all, he thought Jesus might be John risen from the dead and all of that. So he had a chance to see Jesus. This is recorded in the book of Luke. It's chapter 23, verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, and he wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about it, and he was longing to see some sign performed by him. Now, the Bible says John performed no signs. We have no record of a miracle done by John the Baptist, but Herod had heard that Jesus did signs, like feeding the 5,000 and healing people. So he wanted to see a sign. So finally when Jesus showed up, he said, all right, Jesus, maybe John, I don't know, but hey, do a sign. All right, here we go. Go ahead. Nothing. Hey, uh, so uh, tell me about your ministry and what's going on and nothing. He wouldn't even speak one word to him. Herod never got to hear the voice of the Son of God. And the end of that text says that Herod, along with his soldiers, mocked Jesus. He questioned him at some length. Luke 23, 9, Jesus answered him nothing. And then he mocked Jesus. He put a royal robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. The last thing he did with Jesus is mocked him. Wow. Wow. And a strategic day came, Mark 6, 21. Finally, the opportune time came, and this is in the eyes of Herodias, the wife, when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, so this is the queen's daughter, Josephus tells tells us her name was Salome. She came in and danced. She pleased Herod and his dinner guests, and the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want, And I will give it to you. So Herod had this party. They would call them stag parties back in the day. If you want to get your arms around this, it's kind of like a debauched bachelor party. And this is what was going on. And Herod had his buddies there, all the leading men, all the commanders, all the bigwigs, And it was his birthday as well. And he gave the party for the people. And normally what would happen is that they would have dancers here. And I won't get into the gruesome details, but the dancers... You know, they had a job to do and they were professionals, and this is what they did at these parties. And so, something unusual happened at this party. The daughter of the queen came and danced, and it was unheard of in this society for someone of this rank to do this thing. And this wasn't just a dance, it was a dance, if you know what I mean. And she came out and did this, and it is clear that Salome did this at the prodding of mom. Mom saw this as a strategic moment. She knew that he would be drinking. She knew that he would have his buddies around. And she knew him well enough to know that if he was pleased in this way, he might make an offer. And she had set the whole thing up. She's almost like a New Testament Jezebel, you know, plotting and scheming and biding her time. And finally, she saw this opportune time and she had set this whole thing up. And out came the daughter. And she did a seductive dance, and Herod was pleased. And so he makes this offer. He says, ask me ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. Another gospel says, up to half my kingdom. I'm so pleased with what you've done. He swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give you. There it is, up to half of my kingdom. And Matthew fourteen seven says he promised it with an oath. And in the ancient world, if you made an oath like this, especially as a political leader, it was very important. Up to half my kingdom, ask me. And she went out, ran out, and said to her mother, what shall I ask for, mommy? What shall I ask for? By the way, at this time, from what we understand in, in history, she's about a mid-teenager. So she comes out, does this dance. Herod makes this oath in front of all of his buddies, a drunken oath, and she goes, what should I ask him for, mom? So apparently the whole plan was not shared with the daughter. And she said, The head of John the Baptist. So the girl knew mom's plan, but didn't know how low the plan would go. Matthew 14, 8 says, Having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here, and this is added by the daughter, on a platter, the head of John the Baptist. Isn't it amazing how low people can sink? Do you ever just step back and look at something that's going on or look at a story in your Bible and go, how did they get there? How does someone get to that point where they will use their own child to manipulate a situation to get someone killed? Well, that's what's here. And so... Immediately she came, she hurried, she came in haste 25 before the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me right away the head of John the Baptist on a platter. How many levels of sorrow must have moved through Herod's being, his own stupidity? I wonder if he just sobered up in the moment. He he obviously now saw his wife's manipulation. His own... At least his stepdaughter did the dance and that was all wrong. And now he's in quite a dilemma. Never could he have imagined. He might have thought she'd ask for a new chariot or perhaps a new dress. But what did she she say? I want the head of that prophet on a platter now. Put yourself in the king's sandals. What? All of a sudden, the party's not as much fun anymore. All of a sudden, I'm sure there's a soberness in the air. And although the king was very sorry, the idea is he was grieved here. In fact, the distress that the king is feeling is only used in one other place in the Greek in Mark 14, 34, for the distress that Jesus was feeling as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you read Luke's version of that, many scholars believe the pressure was so intense that tiny capillaries were bursting under Jesus' skin as he perhaps bled out of his skin or out of his sweat, if you will. That's the kind of distress the king was in. He was fearful of John. He was puzzled by him, but he enjoyed listening to him. He knew he was holy. He knew he was righteous, and he kept him down there, protected him from his wife. But now the wife, she had snuck in there, and he was grieved. Yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guest, end of 26, he was unwilling to refuse her. Be careful what oaths you make in a moment of time they might come back to haunt you. In fact, if you just pause with me for a second and understand that this story is looking back on the death of John the Baptist, Herod has been haunted ever since this occasion. In fact, he walks around his house, apparently day and night, and says, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. John, whom I beheaded, has risen. It haunts him day and night. And all because he was manipulated and I would say Herod sold his soul. He knew better. He had light and truth. The man who said, you know what? I'm not the light, but he had, uh, John 1, he had come to bear witness of the light. The man who was light in the dungeon to Herod. Now, Herod must snuff him out. He must suppress the truth and kill John for no good reason. And immediately, the king, 27, sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. This is the daughter. And the girl gave it to her mother. I'm sorry to gross you out here. I know this is a family Sunday. (laughs) But this is our Bible, you guys. This is in the Gospels. This is what happened. And the daughter took the platter, the head, and brought it to her mother. Was it something like this? Mommy, aren't you proud of me? Are you kidding me? What a gruesome, terrible scene. And so it was given to the mother. And there's the story. When his disciples, 29, heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. Let's just reflect as we close. Where do you find yourself in the story? Do you see yourself in one of these characters? I hope that maybe you can see yourself as one of the the righteous ones in this story. The fear and fate of Herod and Pilate is quite interesting. Um, this is Herod. He feared another attack by Aretas. Um, Part of the reason this happened was because he had stolen uh, a wife away and so forth. And as Josephus reported, he feared a rebellion by his own people inspired and perhaps even led by John the Baptist. This is what he feared. This is Herod. Herod feared the emperor might replace him with someone uh, in more favor with Rome. That fear was well-grounded because some years after this, His jealous and scheming nephew named Agrippa, the brother of Herodias, convinced the emperor Caligula that Herod was planning a rebellion. Perhaps because Caligula did not fully trust Agrippa's word, Herod and Herodias, husband and wife, in AD 39, about six years after this account, were exiled to Gaul in modern France rather than execution, which was normally the penalty for treason, Then they moved to Spain where they died. Now I'm going to give you a little bit about Pilate because Pilate and Herod had a chance to try Jesus, if you will, in a uh, uh, court scene. Although Pilate's later history is shrouded in some mystery, Eusebius, an early church historian, reports that Pilate was exiled to the city of Vienna on the Rhône in Gaul, France, same uh, basic area, where he eventually committed suicide. How tragic. Apparently, just a few years after this encounter with Jesus, Pilate committed suicide and entered into eternity. Now, step back just for a second and look at these two leaders. Here's Herod. He got to hear the greatest preacher perhaps that ever lived, lived John the Baptist. He He had the living truth, Jesus Christ, stand right in front of him. And all he could do was mock him and send him away. And what you do with Jesus is what really matters in this life. And this room is filled with a lot of Christians. And so then the question becomes, are you willing to preach the hope that he brings? You look at people in these kinds of positions and sometimes we're envious of what they have. Like, oh, wow. Just a, if I could have someone fan me and feed me grapes, that would be awesome. If I could wear a crown. Wow. And then you look behind the scenes and you see Herod. He's troubled his whole life. He was afraid of everything because he did not fear God. Would you bow with me? Father, thank you for your word. It's certainly uh, just straight to the heart what it shares with us, the reality of life, and so many incredible levels here that we can look at. But one thing we want to do is just say, Lord, help us to be faithful men and women. Let us trust in you, knowing that living for your kingdom is the best thing that we can do. Let us also realize that we're gonna have some questions that may not even be answered this side of heaven. But we know where John is, safe in your arms. And when we think about where Herod and Pilate probably are, oh, the the difference is as stark as you can be. The contrast is not even you can't even put it into words. Where two human rulers ended up most likely, and where John ended up is all that really matters. This life, Lord, is something that we enjoy, but it won't last forever, so help us to live for the kingdom that will last. With your head and heart bowed, if you're not a Christian today, make that decision. Follow Jesus Christ. He will give you new life. He will deal with your fears, the fear of death, the fear of the unknown. He's already dealt with those things. He will ease your conscience. He will... Forgive your sin. He will lift your guilt. But you must come to him and bow your knee to him. So if you want to do that today, it's something like this. And I would encourage you, don't let anything stop you from making this decision. Pray it out loud if it's you. Jesus, save me. Thank you that you came to this earth for me. Thank you that you died on the cross and bore my sin. Thank you that you rose from the dead and defeated death. I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. I turn from my sin, and I turn to you. Save me, Lord, I pray. Lord, for those who are crying out, maybe even in the quietness of their souls, may you bless them, meet them where they are, and change them from the inside out, like you've done for all the Christians in this room. We worship you, we love you, and we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Would you stand?